house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. The town is going to put it to a vote in three weeks. What the hell happened? You were supposed to get in, get out. Stephen and I can handle this, sir. I know everything about your company. I know what you do. You think you have what it takes? To beat you? Yeah. Hey, there she is. You ready to go? Yeah. This town, this life, it's dying. You all see it coming and you just don't get out of the way. We're not fighting for land, Steve. We're fighting for people. You ain't ever gonna get what you came here to take from me. I don't even like the fact that you're here to try it. You're a good man, Steve. I just wish you weren't doing this. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that has a line on getting Cher her damn Picasso. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my friend who is also not talking about the fracking, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Uh, I'm your friend who... uh has a lighthouse um in their photo <laughs> that they're disseminating something. A telltale uh not never in Nebraska lighthouse. The layers of that reveal <laughs> were maddening. I mean it's it's a plot twist that doesn't serve its movie well, but also I mean we'll get we'll get into it for sure. But like it's it's not my only issues with this movie, but like Hanging so much of it on that plot twist uh, is a lot, but it's a lot. Whatever, whatever. We're talking about Promised Land this week, the uh, 2012 anti-fracking movie Promised Land. So, of course, we have been making nonstop jokes about Peppermint and Bob the Drag Queen for the last several weeks. Did you see that article from Instinct Magazine? Oh, the fracking? No, no, not that. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> As we've uh, been ramping up to this, which I love that, like, that is now my cultural touchstone to fracking to this like giant is rupaul like socio-political issue is not even just rupaul like but like bob and peppermint specifically perhaps not um homosexual or very on the internet um just google rupaul fracking um and be disappointed yeah rupaul's fracking y'all and in wyoming or something like that listen uh RuPaul grew up on a uh, in a farm town and saw that farm town devastated by uh, economic downturn. And now RuPaul has no choice but to work for the fracking industry and mm-hmm. just trying to get everybody their money so that they can get out. It's okay. Here's the thing about Promised Land, which is like an issue movie, like first and foremost, and fine, like. That's a 
legitimate genre and whatever, and there are good ones and bad ones and yada yada. Um, but this one specifically feels like an issue movie that didn't bother to wrap it up in anything else. <laughs> like normally it's like you get an issue movie and it's like a character drama. And I guess this is sort of a character drama for Matt Damon, but like it's soft pedals it so much. Yeah. That it's it's very flimsy. It's just surfacey. It's just like really, really surfacey. And it's like it's, I think it's that, but it's also that you have, I mean, forgive me, a rather uncompelling performer doing that kind of character study pathos thing that I actually think is could be interesting and could be an interesting way to like talk about the complexities of fracking on like a cultural level and like what mindset gets behind this, right? But like well, it's that's, one of the yeah. flattest Matt Damon performances. I think Matt Damon is capable of doing really, really good stuff. I don't think he is at his as in his nature an uncompelling actor. Like I think he's been very, very good in a lot of different types of things. This just not being one of them. But it does kind of right. hamper a movie that has potential to be more sort of morally complicated than you're expecting going into a movie like this, where like the the arguments for and against fracking and how those arguments would land with a small town sort of poised on the precipice of economic downturn or economic sort of ruin really mm-hmm. that's interesting there are like multiple little threads that you could sort of weave your way through that story with and the fact that like two people in those kind of economic situations, there's maybe a trade-off to be made for, you know, environmental long-term versus we're about to all go broke in the short term. Do you know what I mean? Where, like, Mm -hmm. you could see where that would be an actual debate. My problem with this movie, first and foremost, is I don't think that debate rings true in any of this. Like, it reminded me, no. the fact that, like, he's going door-to-door to try and sell this obviously brings to mind something like Aaron Brockovich to me, where, like, she also sort of, there's a, there's a you know, so much of that movie is about her hustle, right? She's got to go. So what you're saying is Promised Land is, what if Aaron Brockovich, if Aaron Brockovich worked for PG&E? Well, kind of, yeah, right. It's, like, the opposite end of it. But also, the fact that, like, Oh, I was going somewhere with that. Now I've totally uh, lost my train of thought because you've uh, uh, brought me uh, down the Aaron Brockovich working for PG&E path. Um, Every day is a winding road on this podcast. <laughs> no, but um, the fact that like those the people she's trying to sell in Aaron Brockovich on the PG&E lawsuit all have their own angle on it and some of them need money right now and some of them are more into making pg&e pay the big bucks and some of them are more like you know my economic needs are now and you get that in a lot of those big sort of town scenes and the scenes where she's really trying to sell like cherry jones on this Mm -hmm. or whatever and i feel like there's potential in promised land to 
talk about that kind of stuff and the fact that like the Scoot McNary character is antagonistic to him and the Rosemary DeWitt character is more uh, inclined to it. And I feel like if you had sort of made those characters more central to the plot and really made the town's reaction to it feel more organic and feel more like my big sticking point with this movie is I don't think this town embraces the John Krasinski character at all, like in a a real life situation, like even on its, Mm -hmm. even on his face, even before the twist of the movie happens, this sort of like college bro looking Henley wearing clean cut, whatever environmentalist rolling into town and telling you, don't take this million dollar, you know, pennies from heaven deal or whatever. That to me is just like they'd have rode that guy out on a rail. I don't care how game he is to sing Bruce Springsteen at the bar. Do you know what I mean? Like none of that felt genuine to me. And it kind of puts this giant crater at the center of the movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's also kind of fundamentally flawed because the movie take it the way that it takes the angle that it does, it kind of thinks that the people who are selling small townspeople on fracking are more interesting than the small townspeople kind of grappling yes. or considering it. Um, Cause like, that's probably the movie I would be more interested in seeing. And I think it's the version of promised land that yeah. uh, would be a better. Movie. Yeah. I think when you decide to make the anti fracking movie from the perspective of the fracking company executive who sees the light, you're, you're maybe not getting off on the right foot. I also very predictably um, want this movie to be more about the Rosemary DeWitt character because I always want the movies <laughs> to be more about the Rosemary DeWitt characters. Um, they really try to sell this flirtation romance on just triangle. like one night at the bar, yeah. right? And then she drops out of the movie for half hour. But it's like, but minutes, that maybe. scene works because she's so like she's good at that kind of thing, right? And so I think, and I think mm-hmm. there's pretty good chemistry between the two of them. And but yeah, you're right. Then all of a sudden, it's just like, well, that she's interesting because she's part of his rivalry with um, Krasinski's character. This is the. It's also a pretty bafflingly cast movie as far as like it's so weird to see francis mcdormand playing the fracking company employee rather than like because we've gotten so used to especially in the last maybe like you know five to eight years of her career her playing these like real hard-ass salt of the earth like pissed off characters right and mm-hmm. it's just so weird to be like oh she's the inauthentic one she's the one who has to like go to the local store to like camouflage herself in small town drag and it's just like that's sort of like she's trying to become a francis mcdormand character i guess she's trying to like <laughs> maybe if somebody had just been like no be like a francis mcdormand character and she's like oh okay um and i also think casting again casting krasinski who I don't hate, like, it seems like a lot of people hate John Krasinski, and, like, whatever, that's fine. I think um, I think there were a lot of sort of, like, I'm going to take the alt angle on The Office and be like, Jim is smug, and it's just like, okay, whatever. But he's way too smug for this movie, for this role, to, like, for that to make sense. Yeah. For, like, it, it sets you up for the twist at the end, for sure, but, like, it... 
the twist where he goes full Bond villain and explains <laughs> everything yeah. about it in a way that it's like, okay, well, he just lost his job for telling him all of those things. I mean, I guess, like, I guess I good for that because he's evil. I sort of take it as almost just like like a corporate rival flex where it's just like I just like did your job better than you did your job and whatever and um but it's just like again everything leading up to that where he's supposed to be like the you know humble environmentalist who wins the town over I'm just like I don't see him winning this town over like I see this town like instinctively loathing this guy and riding him out on a rail like it's not like environmentalists are a great sell or an easy sell for you know small town farmers anyway right so Mm -hmm. i don't know it also has this like sheen of like trying i mean like it's cliche to say capra-esque but like you can kind of feel this movie reaching for a certain type of like maybe capra like americana of like glossing over things that feels like for lack of a better word inauthentic it feels like people's vision of what like small town American life is like rather than I don't know I thought a lot about like other filmmakers what they could who could have done a movie like this and make it actually feel like a small town not like our rose tinted glasses version of a small American town like someone like Deborah Granick sure Uh, you know like that type of film I get what you're saying I always find that to be sort of a slippery slope argument for me to make because a I don't know what a small American town feels like in my bones, you know what I mean? So I feel like sometimes I think the temptation to be like, this is real and this is less real because this looks like grittier and this looks like it has more of a sheen. And I'm just like, I don't know that Deborah Granick isn't sure. as phony as any other, you know, filmmaker who's but coming into a town. What we were presented in this movie felt incredibly phony. It definitely felt like it was telling the story from the perspective of the corporate people because those are the people that this that they knew, you know? <laughs> and yeah. and that again isn't maybe the the tack to take when your moral is I'm going to side with the good sort of salt of the earth people of small town Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. yeah it and again it's a pretty watchable movie as it goes like it it goes down easy I think that's maybe part of the problem of the movie is that it goes down a little too easy yeah but it's like it's thankfully not very long. I wasn't clawing my face off watching this ultimately if I have to watch you know Francis McDormand and Matt Damon and Rosemary DeWitt and Hal Holbrook do their thing it's just like that's fine like that's I'm not gonna you know object to that in any way but it you get immediately why this movie was greeted with kind of a half of a smile wave of the hand sort of just like yeah whatever sure um and ultimately that's what sealed its fate as an oscar play is that like it waited so late in the year to open it opened uh in like a qualifying release rushed it after christmas it was yeah yeah and then that kind of a movie if that movie gets a kind of like a polite sort of, you know, quarter smile response, you're dead in the water. I, I don't care if you yeah, are Matt buried. Damon and Cus Van Sant and whatever. So, yeah. So, okay, this 
being a Matt Damon movie, Chris, we should mention before we get too far along, this is Matt Damon's asterisky six timers club entry into our podcast yeah the sixth matt damon okay so we have argued about this for i and we can't remember what we decided so we will say definitively now yes we have argued that there are two movies that we have done that you could say this is our seventh matt damon one of them is finding Forrester where he is in a scene and not like interstellar in a scene. Like it's right. It's, it's a, like a full, like blink and you'll miss it cameo. Yeah. yeah. And then the majestic, he, is it a full voice? I can't remember anything from that. God awful movie. Is he just a voiceover the whole movie or just like the I don't letter think, at the end? I don't think he narrates like the whole movie. I think it's just towards the end, but I could be yeah, wrong. It's, it's been not a like Jim Carrey, Simon Birch situation. Right, or like it's Alec like Baldwin a, in the Royal Tenenbaums or something exactly. like that. So, so my, those are going to count as one. Right. My whole thing has always been, it feels weird to say Matt Damon's a six-timer when two of them are movies he's barely in. in. This is this goes back to my whole Jude Law wasn't really in six movies in 2004. Or he was, but like two of them are real asterisky. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel weird about it. So right. I am nothing if not pedantically consistent. So... Uh, so we're going to take the occasion of Promised Land to celebrate Matt Damon six asterisk timer uh, this had Oscar buzz entry. So as we have done with our previous six timers, uh, Meryl Streep, Claire Danes, Naomi Watts, Dermot Mulroney, um, we didn't actually do it for Anthony Hopkins, although we could and uh, probably should have. But uh, we, Next time we, we strive... do Anthony Hopkins, we'll make up for it. Exactly. So... As we've done with all of those, I made up a little quiz for you, Chris, about the six. We're gonna. What I'm doing for the the sake of this is I'm counting Finding Forrester. I'm not counting the Majestic. So I'm okay. gonna give you a quiz where the answers will be some combination of Courage Under Fire, Suburbicon, All the Pretty Horses, Finding Forrester, The Rainmaker, and Promised Land, which are uh, the six official according to me uh matt damon movies that we have done bless you for not making me uh face plant by trying to remember the majestic we um, already can't remember how much of a voiceover <laughs> matt damon does in it that's enough trivia about that film so yes okay all right so this is yeah this is just you know basic kind of stuff whatever so all right matt damon quiz begins now, which is the one which is the only one of those six movies that was released pre-September in its year? Um, um Courage Under Fire. Indeed, Courage Under Fire was released in, I believe, July. Yes. Or July. like May, June, something like that. Yes. Uh right. Which two films were released by Paramount? Suburbicon and yes. um The Rainmaker? Correct, Suburbicon and the Rainmaker. All right, which one made the most money? Hmm. Okay, so this is all uh, worldwide. Uh, I don't think it matters either way, but like I'm counting worldwide. Like one of them is significantly the most. See, you would think it is the Rainmaker because like John Grisham movies made money, but like 
we talked about that in our episode. It surprisingly didn't make that much money. Uh, it's definitely not Suburbicon. It's definitely not Promised Land. Could be Courage Under Fire. I don't think it's Finding Forrester. What movie am I forgetting already after you just listed them to me? What are the middle ones after Courage Under Fire, Suburbicon? All the Pretty Horses. Uh, not and that. Then Promised Land. Promised Land, did you just yeah, say? I did. Okay. Uh, is it Courage Under Fire? It is. Courage Under Fire okay. made a worldwide gross of one, $100.9 million. The surprising one here to me is that Finding Forrester made globally $80 million. Oh, wow. Which, well, see, shocking the thing is, me. I think that pr- it got decent reviews, and that probably had you know the widest release at least yeah of the of the non-courage under fire ones that is probably yeah. true all right so which one made the least money is it suburbicon it's not is it promised land it's promised land but like barely promised land made 12.3 million suburbicon was 12.8 wow yes all right, which is the longest in running time? All the Pretty Horses. No, surprisingly. Mm. All the Pretty Horses. Uh, uh, no, it's a, the Rainmaker. A scant 117 uh, for All the Pretty Horses. The Rainmaker. Yeah, and it was originally like four hours long. Yes. The Rainmaker is the second longest by one minute. Courage Under Fire? Nope. Finding Forrester. Okay. Finding Forrester clocks in at 136 minutes. The Rainmaker is 135. Uh, which, but if you count as like by subplot, uh, Finding Forrester only really has one plot and the Rainmaker has 10. A million plots. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, which one features a score by Alexandra Desplat? Suburbicon? Suburbicon. I would not have remembered that. Very good job. <laughs> All right, which one features cinematography by Roger Deakins? All the Pretty Horses? No. All the Pretty Horses... Um, Courage Under Fire? Yes, Courage Under Fire, cinematography by Roger Deakins. There have been some... The the Matt Damon ones we have talked about have had pretty good cinematographer creds. Harris Mm -hmm. Savita's on Finding Forrester, John Toll on The Rainmaker, Lina Sandgren did Promised Land, which uh, I don't really have any notes on the cinematography of promised land but like i like lena sandgren a lot as a cinematographer yeah um okay which was the most recent to be a blockbuster award nominee all the pretty horses yes all the pretty horses yes uh i think that i think all of the early ones courage under fire uh the rainmaker and then all the pretty horses were all blockbuster nominees. All the Pretty Horses was the most recent. Was nominated for Best Actor and Best Actress in a Romance Slash Drama for Matt Damon and uh, Penelope Cruz. So there's that. You know the kids those days. They loved all the Pretty Horses. They, they loved so renting all the Pretty Horses <laughs> um, when Aaron Brockovich was all uh, rented out. Yes. Uh, which two were nominated for the USC Scripter Screenplay Prize? So that has to be adapted from a text. I'm going to say one of them is All the Pretty Horses and The Rainmaker? Very good. All the Pretty okay. Horses and The Rainmaker, both nominated which... for the USC Scripter Prize. Yeah. Well done. All right. Which 
2 played in competition at the Berlin Film Festival? Um, All the Pretty Horses and Promised Land? Nope. Promised Land, definitely one of them. Uh, The Rainmaker? Nope. Damn it. Um, Finding Forrester. Yes, Finding Forrester. Finding Forrester, like, he didn't win a prize for Finding Forrester, but I think Gus Van Sant, like, won, like, a maybe like lifetime achievement or some kind of oh so it was both of the gus van sants with matt damon too yes yes um which was the only one to be nominated for a golden globe for acting um and who was it for I don't think it was for... No, it was for John Voight for The Rainmaker. Yes, very good. John Voight and The Rainmaker. You are killing this one. All right. Which one opened in wide release the same weekend as Save the Last Dance? Uh, Finding Forrester. Yes, Finding Forrester. Very good. (laughs) Uh, Julia Stiles was also the man now dog. That little hop. I mean, that's when she became the man now dog. Exactly. All right. And the last question that I have... Which one opened in wide release on the same weekend as Harriet the Spy? Okay, so this would be mid-90s. Is that... Ooh, it's either The Rainmaker or Courage Under Fire, but I'm going to say The Rainmaker. I really wanted you to end on a winning note, but it is not. It is Courage Under Fire. Damn. Imagine rolling up to your multiplex that weekend and seeing the the decision to be made between Courage Under Fire and Harriet the Spy. I want to know Meg somebody Ryan who was like and Rosie torn. O'Donnell. Meg Ryan or Rosie O'Donnell. Which one? Which to choose? Exactly. Iconic Michelle Trachtenberg vehicle, uh, Harriet the Spy. Very well done, Chris. You have, Thank uh, you. I've decided that you have aced the Matt Damon quiz. I am shocked that I remembered that much from our previous episodes. Usually I bomb these. I love that I, uh, you know, basically got an A- minus on Matt Damon and probably a C- minus on Meryl. Yeah, yeah. Think about that. Sit with that one in your life. Yeah. Details of your incompetence do not interest me. This also was Matt Damon deciding to... He almost directed this movie, which we'll probably talk about uh, mm-hmm. more. But uh, deciding to have his kind of Oscar play movie come out in the season of uh ben affleck having his like tumultuous argo year where so much of that year felt like um we're temperature checking how's ben affleck doing right now because after i i'll never forget it we've probably talked about this before but the fact that um was it the Critics' Choice Awards yes. the night of the Oscar nomination? Yes, Oscar nomination morning happens. Yeah. Ben Affleck is, like, shockingly left off of the best director lineup for Argo. Nobody, th- Everybody thought he was a shoe-in for that, including me. Um, it doesn't happen. That night is the Critics' Awards. And the mood around that night felt so funereal, where it's just like, how's he holding <laughs> up? Do you think he's okay? Because then immediately after the Oscar nominations happen... He wins Best Director at Critics' Choice, right? Like, yes. And so it's like everything that happens for the rest of award season happens as if he would he did get a Best Director nomination because like Argo just kept moving forward and the perceptions had to sort of like catch up to the fact that like oh that snub didn't mean anything in terms of Argo still winning Best Picture, but mm-hmm. in that moment everybody was just like. 
oh, what a weird thing for Ben Affleck. Oh, he must be feeling so strange. He gets the big snub and then he wins and now he's got to talk to people. Do you think he's okay? Like, did you see his face? There was face? a little bit of rubbernecking towards uh, the uh, slightly cringy side of it. Yes. But like, but that continued throughout all of the award season was there's this push-pull of like a little bit of rubbernecking, but also a little bit of just like, Poptimism, like Ben Affleck poptimism, where it's just like, good for him. Oh, he won the Golden Globe. Good for him. I'm glad. Like, well, because that critic's choice, I might be misremembering that they gave him a standing ovation, <laughs> which is hilarious, if so. But his speech had this thing of like, okay, I've got something to say. Like, you know. Yeah. Well, and then. Because everybody in the room knew. Yeah. And that tone sort of persisted through his Oscar speech for when Argo wins Best Picture uh, at the Oscars. I watch it more often than I watch something that I don't like. It's not like I love it. Like I love like Julia Roberts's Oscar speech or something like that. But it's so fascinating as to like its determination to tell the Ben Affleck story in like under five minutes right where he's just like Mm -hmm. he's talking about facing adversity and like when he's talking about facing adversity he means remember when the press dumped all over me for having a relationship with jennifer lopez like that's what he's talking about and it's weird that like Mm -hmm. and it's like it's not untrue like he did kind of get like the industry did kind of sort of turn up their nose at him for a while because of that. So it's not untrue, but it's also kind of like a gauche thing to talk about, especially as you're like currently at the top of the heap. Remember when I faced adversity when I wasn't nominated for Best Director? Oh, also that, right. And then at the same speech, it's also the speech where he talks about how his marriage to Jennifer Garner is such hard work. And it like it's wrapped in the guise of a compliment, but it's worded so peculiarly and you know, interest in his romantic life has always been sort of at a fever pitch anyway. So of course everybody read into that. And um and that marriage ultimately, you know, doesn't last as we all know. Uh Jennifer Gardner refuses to be the ashes. The ashes. Um uh, Celine Dion's song from Deadpool two Deadpool two Ashes is about Jennifer <laughs> Famously, yes. So um yeah, so, you know, Matt Damon and Gus Van Sant sort of bringing the band back together in the year of Argo is always really kind of interesting to me. There's a lot of um, uh, interconnectedness with the cast of this movie um, that I, I've always, I don't know why I find this interesting, and it ultimately isn't that interesting, but like, this is, so this movie comes out the same year that Your Sister's Sister comes out, right? Um, mm-hmm. Your sister's sister had played at Toronto in 2011, but it's a 2012 movie. So in that movie, John Krasinski's wife, Emily Blunt, co-stars with Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, the year before Promised Land is the Adjustment Bureau, which is Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. So then Promised Land is Matt Damon and Krasinski together, along with Rosemary DeWitt. Rosemary DeWitt, who played Ben Affleck's wife, I'm pretty sure, in The Company Men. Um it's just an odd little like thing where I remember at the time being like, oh, I bet they all just like get together for dinner a bunch. Like all these couple, like Damon and his wife, Krasinski and Blunt, uh, Rosemary DeWitt and Ron Livingston, you know, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. It always felt like they were all sort of like swirling around each other's movies. Garner and, well, this would be later, but Garner and DeWitt are both in Men, Women and Children. Matt Damon and Rosemary DeWitt are both in Margaret. Uh, Krasinski and Blunt beyond being married are both in the Muppets that same year. So like, it was an odd little like 
confluence of the universe that I always that's one of the first things I think about when I think about Promised Land, weirdly enough. That it is just a connective fiber, yeah, not a movie. Yeah, sort of. Well, okay, so I maybe we should do the 60-second plot description before we get into like the genesis creation of this movie. Yes. Because the passing of hands for this movie feels like they were playing hot potato or something. Like, I have this idea, I don't know if I, if I like it, but uh, here, you take this. Yeah. Yes, let's do the plot description because, yeah, you're, it's, it's a good way of framing that. All right, so before we do the plot description, I'm just going to give out the basics. We're talking about Promised Land, the 2012, uh, 2012 film Promised Land, directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Matt Damon and John Krasinski, based on a story by Dave Eggers, starring Matt Damon, John Krasinski, Francis McDormand, Rosemary DeWitt, Hal Holbrook, Titus Welliver, Scoot McNary, Terry Kinney, and Lucas Black. It premiered uh, in a qualifying run on December 28th, 2012. It then, like, rolled out through the beginning of 2013. It's one of those movies that, like, played the Berlin Film Festival in February of 2013 after it uh, premiered in the United States. It's an odd, odd rollout for this movie. Uh, But yeah, Chris, do you want to spend 60 seconds telling our listeners about Promising? All right, hold on. Sure. Why not? All right. My- Gus Van Sant's, Matt Damon's, John Krasinski's, <laughs> Dave Eggers' Promised Land. Exactly. Are you ready, sir? Sure. All right. Your 60 seconds begins now. Uh, guess who's fracking the house? It's none ah! other than Matt Damon playing Steve, who is a salesman for a uh, multi-billion dollar fracking company. He has a partner played by Frances McDormand. Her name is Sue. They descend on this uh, small town because they want to frack there um, and make some money. Um, the townspeople initially don't meet them so well. Some of them do until uh, Hal Holbrook shows up at a town meeting and says, hey guys, do you know what fracking is? It is bad. And then seconds. other people think that it's bad. John Krasinski shows up as an environmentalist. He sings Bruce Springsteen at karaoke and makes everybody like him, and then the town is kind of against them, but they still are getting people to do fracking. There's going to be a big town meeting, but then John Krasinski um, puts out this uh, whole story, backstory of his, and Matt Damon finds out that it is a lie because he can see a lighthouse Ten in the seconds. back of this photo of a farm that John Krasinski said he was. He confronts John Krasinski. He's like, yes, you're right. I am working for your rival. This has all been a sham. Uh, and then Matt Damon sees like the error in fracking and uh, basically unveils all of this and tells people to vote how they want at this town meeting. Um, and then he, uh, I guess, dates Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, yeah, sticks around in town, dates Rosemary DeWitt. One thing I wanted to sort of uh, correct, though, in that it's not that Krasinski is working for Matt Damon's rival. It's he's working for Matt Damon's company. Oh, wait. They pulled like the rope-a-dope on him. We're like... Krasinski comes in, plays the environmentalist, then sets up his own reveal as a sham in order to make Global look good. Why so, did like, I think Global was a different company? It's not. Global is the company that Matt Damon works for. So basically, after Matt, Matt Damon had that disastrous town meeting where Hal Holbrook like essentially suns him, um, right. the company sent in John Krasinski under the guise of being an environmentalist to like poison the well, as it were. Um, exactly for for the anti-fracking cause in the town to intentionally disseminate misinformation see i yes this is the part of the movie where it's like the movie is so placid then this whole john krasinski reveal 
is like confusing because there's nothing going on in this movie. And then all of a sudden there's this double, triple cross. Right. Well, the movie does not set you up. It's not about corporate intrigue at all until that moment. So you're not really prepared for this to be that kind of a movie. So all of a sudden it just sort of plays as this like odd little deus ex machina where it's just like, oh, okay. So now all of a sudden this is about uh, corporate underhandedness and Matt Damon getting like shivved for uh, you know business reasons or whatever and right it's not the perils of fracking you know it's not earth and water on fire that uh makes him turn his back on fracking it's that he works for an underhanded company also like this company is fully wild for the fact that like Krasinski tells all to Matt Damon, essentially is like you've been played for a fool, my friend, um, by your own, you know, by our shared employers. But the fact that they still send in Matt Damon to that little town meeting the next day, where Matt Damon has his, like, change of heart and tells the town to, like, stick to its guns Framed or whatever. with an American flag behind him. The fact that Global didn't, like, send him home after that reveal from Krasinski and have Francis McDormand do that per... Uh, presentation is truly insane and wild that they were just like oh this guy that we've totally like humiliated we're gonna send him in to and hopefully he will continue to tow the company line and it's just like you big fucking dummies like it just doesn't make a ton of sense whatever i sound like cinema sins now but like it's just like it goes to like (laughs) like baseline believability which i think this movie has a problem with on a lot of levels but yeah so Talk a little bit about the how hot potato ness. Yeah, well, this is part of this that. movie sort of starts out, I guess, based on a story by Dave Eggers, but like Dave Eggers isn't even like this isn't even credited as an adaptation. So like clearly the the inspired approached by John Krasinski to like create something like this. I assume through involvement of Away We Go. You didn't talk about Away We Go's relationship to this movie, but it is there. It's true. Yeah, it's the Krasinski and Eggers of it. Away We Go, a movie I uh, love. I do too. Um, Dave Eggers doesn't really stay on beyond a story development for the movie and they bring it to Matt Damon to potentially write a screenplay. Damon decides he's going to direct it Meanwhile, Krasinski and Damon are collaborating on the screenplay. Damon can't direct it. Damon recruits Gus Van Sant. Right. His old uh, his old Goodwill Hunting pal. And I mean, like, we're the dum-dums who have a podcast. We don't make movies. I'm sure there's plenty of movies that are made in this way, you know, of a passing of hands of, like... Recruiting people who you have collaborated with or right. you have a relationship with to like tell a story, but it really feels like in like this movie's narrative, it's like people passing it on, like yeah. wanting to be involved, but be like, no, but you do it. I was trying to figure out what movie because Matt Damon passed on directing it because he ultimately ended up with uh, conflicts for a movie he was filming. My guess is because it would have taken a long time to film it. My guess is this movie is Elysium, which makes it even kind of funnier. But, like, I have no actual proof that that's Elysium had reshoots, and I'm pretty sure the Adjustment Bureau had reshoots. Right. Adjustment Bureau was the year before Promised Land, and Elysium is the year after. Because its release date was pushed, and they, I think they overhauled the movie. So depending on what end of things that these uh, delays happened... 
one of those two, I think, is probably uh, the safe bet. So, yeah. And interestingly enough, the fact that, like, this was setting up to be Matt Damon's directorial debut, it's been nine years since then, and he hasn't directed anything else. I wonder if he sort of, like, maybe took a step back and was just like, maybe this isn't something I want to do. Which, honestly kudos like i feel like maybe more people should like there's something of a not always there's a lot of actors who make very very good directors but there is something of a uh uh what is it the peter principle where you you rise to the level of your own incompetence which sounds so mean but it basically means just like you keep advancing to the point where you get to the job that you can't do very well and then like you should like stop one level before that and sometimes and like i relate to that it comes for all of us yeah um but like i kind of good for matt damon if he decided that like you know what i feel like i'm an actor first and foremost but it is interesting that like because his big breakthrough was goodwill hunting of film that he essentially you know there's all this talk about like how much uh you know did gus van sant actually you know sort of handhold those boys along or whatever but like that's their authorial vision right that movie was basically essentially credited to them as a you know that was their movie mm-hmm. and it's surprising that he never did sort of like level back up again to uh he hasn't even like written that many scripts since goodwill hunting actually like it's just goodwill hunting he's got a screenplay credit for jerry even though i'm pretty sure that's just like most of that movie was improvised right so like that's what that credit comes from uh, mm-hmm. Also Gus Van Sant. And then Promised Land. And then now he's got something in post-production called The Last Duel, the, the Ridley, Ridley Scott, Scott movie, movie that he and Ben Affleck... and Affleck, and they both did the screenplay which on is, that as well. I, Who did the polish on it? Because a female writer was also brought on... Nicole Holofcener. Oh, Jesus, no. Of course I couldn't remember it's Nicole Holofcener. <laughs> I blocked that out of my mind. That is a movie where it's just like, it's Ridley Scott, who like, I have my ups and downs with the Ridley Scott, but it's still like, it's it's a major thing. It's Damon and Affleck together, who again, I don't always love, but it's fascinating. It's Adam Driver and, and Jodie Comer are also both in this movie. And like, Harriet Walter, like the cast is really, really fantastic. I'm fascinated by it, but also I dread it so much i definitely want to see nicole hall of centers like uh early centuries epic battle movie but i want it to be her movie you know yeah well this is her doing a polish on a matt <laughs> like, damon I, ben affleck script do what she wants to do i don't know if i want to see the nicole hall of center ridney's really scott movie yeah, well, and it's... The unimpeachable Nicole Hall of Center. Yeah. Let her do what she wants to do. It, it definitely feels like a, that's a, you know, a work-for-hire thing for her. It doesn't feel like, if that movie is bad, it's certainly yeah. not going to get hung up on Nicole Hall of Center. But that's also the movie that everybody got mad at, because the logline is that, like, these two... Uh, it's a war whatever, started by a rape or something. It's a king and a knight, and they decide to have a duel uh over the rape of one of their wives and it's just like oh we're still doing this we're still doing um rape as a plot device it's just like cool 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 Um, it's also the movie with the onset photos that are utterly hilarious where adam driver looks like a warrior jesus he does (laughs) he really really does um matt damon has like a soul patch (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's dyed completely blonde or yes. something. It's yeah. Go look up the uh, uh, the one cast photo of it where it's it, it does. Well, Matt Damon looks like um, almost like a monk 
like that you would like call in to uh pretty sure he has a bowl cut it's weird it's all weird and yet like adam driver at the same time is just like luxurious flowing locks yada 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 it's uh this is really what uh, why i want nicole hall center to be free of this movie for because i'm prepared to i feel like you're more invested in nicole hall center's presence in this movie than you need to be like i honestly feel like this was probably a week and a half's worth of just like all right whatever like let me fix whatever they've decided to do to this she's staying booked and busy and that's great yes very good good for her anyway back to promised land um yeah. Back to Promised Land, which is a movie about me showing up at a movie theater and they play the wrong Robin Wright movie. And I go to the <laughs> usher and I say, I was promised land. Oh my God, shut up. I hate you so much. In the aftertimes when I'm back in the movies. Right, when we're all back, uh, when we're all allowed back in the movies again. Um, we talked about how much I want this movie to be about Rosemary DeWitt's character. I also really enjoyed the two big Hal Holbrook scenes in it. Yeah, and I feel Hal like, Holbrook's really good in this. I feel like that's sort of where the movie maybe finds its heart. I think Rosemary DeWitt's the, where the movie could have taken a different path and been better. I think Hal Holbrook are, are the moments where the movie feels really in the pocket. Like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that's good. And not just because of the performance. Like, Rosemary DeWitt scenes, like, that is fully just the performance. That character yes. is nothing. Right. But she is great, so she makes it incredibly watchable. Yes. Yeah, I think the Holbrook character, those are the parts where it seems, like, well-conceived. Again, you talk about, like, characters I would have maybe wanted this movie to be about. Like, they give, for a second, they sort of give his bio, and that, like, he's, like, a former like MIT professor or something like that. Like he's mm-hmm. like really like knows his shit and he's retired and he's basically just sort of like teaching in his free time at the local high school. And like, that's a character I'd want. He also has this thing where he says something that like <laughs> was more relatable to me than it should be. Uh, but we're living in uh, troubled times where he's like, I, I the difference between me and the people in this town who maybe want to take this deal is I'm old enough to know that I'll probably die before I have a chance of dying before uh before essentially like this all goes bad essentially like I'll die with my uh, with my uh with my morals intact or something like that and I was just like, oh, I find myself thinking that more and more where it's just like wow, like hopefully like by the time this planet like rolls off this mortal coil i'll be dead and that'll be good and uh or like by the time like america like fully like sinks into the sea of authoritarianism i'm just like well maybe i'll be dead by then so like whatever and i probably related (laughs) too much to uh what hell holbrook was saying in those scenes but he wants it to be preserved he says i may be dying but he doesn't want to like right he wants you know yeah yes but it also has that sense of inevitability of just like, I know the way things are going. I know it's we're being faced with between a choice of the economy is going to fall apart or the environment around here is going to fall apart. And what do we decide to choose? And he's just like, ultimately, I have at least the comfort of being like, whatever I choose, I'll probably be dead before the worst happens anyway. So um, I it was a dark thought, but it was a thought for sure. Um yeah, so beyond just sort of what this movie is and what it sort of does and doesn't do well, the release of this movie 
This is a focus movie. This is a focus features movie. The release of this movie is pretty uh, baffling, or at least, like, in hindsight, mm-hmm. pretty ill-conceived. The fact that, seemingly, rather than, like, decide to hold off on it and make it a 2013 release and sort of, you know... Hold off on it and take it to Sundance. <laughs> take it to Sundance. Take it to, you know, maybe even the fall festivals or something South like by. that. Yeah, something where it can, like... If it's good, which ultimately I don't think I don't think there's a universe in which this movie does well anyway, because I think a festival rollout it'll end up like getting picked apart the same way, right? Right. But to release this thing with a qualifying release on December twenty eighth, then hold off on it for basically another month before anybody sees it. And by this time, like you look at the stuff that got released in the last month of twenty twelve, and it's like zero dark thirty Django Unchained, Le Miserable, uh, and even stuff like The Impossible. It was a huge and like, this is Christmas 40? box office for Oscar movies. Right. Like the Oscar like the Oscar conversation that is happening while Promised Land is still sitting on the shelf, like things are really, really firming up. And already there was stuff like, obviously, Argo and Lincoln and Life of Pi, which had opened in October and November of the year. Like by the time Promised Land got seen by anybody, that Oscar lineup is pretty well like locked in. Like Zero Dark Thirty is the late breaker, pretty much. Um and like, it's a way more formidable movie than this one because th- yeah. here's the here's what I do think a scenario is. Again, I am a simp. I am not a filmmaker. <laughs> right. But they filmed this movie in the April of 2012 and released it in December. So they rushed this movie. Right. Like you could have had more post production time. You could kind of fine tune the beats of the movie to make a better movie. Yeah. Like, I yeah, and I'm not quite sure what the you know what the impetus to rush it out was but okay like you know you you tried it and i mean i guess maybe in that like maybe they thought people were more primed to accept it because it was an election year even if it was after an election i don't know yeah Um, so the other focus movies this year they had a lot of like co-productions so maybe it's like they wanted something that this was like sort of all on their own because they were they had a co-production on Anna Karenina and on well Hyde Park on Hudson the ill-conceived and ill-received uh, Hyde Park on Hudson and Moonrise Kingdom Moonrise Kingdom and Anna Karenina were both sort of uh, better placed within the awards conversation of twenty twelve and they didn't really start pushing moonrise kingdom until pretty late as their other things were kind of falling off and you i guess we can assume that like they knew promised land might not right. be the one right yeah um because even anna karenina like we're two people that love that movie but that's not a universally um accepted or and uh, yeah they're detractors for sure for anna karenina um wrong as they are and maybe they're looking ahead at 2013 and being like look we're really they because 2013 they have an oscar contender in the spring that year they have the place beyond the pines and that's so if you're looking to push promised land you don't want to put it into the spring because you've got something there that you want to sort of give room to grow and then you've got Ultimately, they end up having Dallas Buyers Club for the fall, which probably wasn't already placed there by this point in the calendar. But, like, 
I remember a year ahead, people were like, keep an eye out for Dallas Buyers Club. So like, they definitely had their eye on it. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, we're not in these, uh, these conversations, but like, I think the calendaring of these movies for these, especially these sort of like dependent mid-major studios is really interesting. And, uh, you know, to be a fly on the wall in those conversations would be interesting. That whole last week of after Christmas, before New Year's, in terms of a release um, date for movies that have been successful with Oscar, it's like, yeah, in the early 2000s, there was a lot of movies. I think, like, The Hours wasn't didn't open until, like, December 28th of its year or something like that. And there were movies that were successful doing that as a strategy. And it took a while for a lot of these distributors to realize that was more of an anomaly than yeah. a trend. Um, and there's been a lot of movies that have kind of face-planted from that. I think of, like, A Most Violent Year. Yes. Um, I think I think a lot of movie studios were emboldened by Million Dollar Baby coming out at the very, very last second in 2004 and winning Best Picture. And it's just like, oh, you can do that. You can just sort of like, you can come out at the exact last minute and you're the last thing everybody sees and everybody's talking about you and everybody's sort of, uh, you know, charmed by you and that will like carry you through and you hit that timing just right. And it's like that definitely is the best case scenario but in many many other cases especially now that like precursor season seems to be getting more and more prominent like that field starts to firm up quicker than you think and Mm -hmm. if you're waiting until december 28th to uh even like you know make your limited new york and la premiere or whatever like those those uh best picture slots in 2012 were kind of spoken for um, the mm-hmm. one area where it did get kind of bailed out, though, is it shows up on the National Border Review Top 10 for 2012, which it's a real interesting NBR year, where they get seven of the eventual nine Oscar nominees for Best Picture on their uh, lineup. They have uh, Argo, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty is, wins their uh, their top film of the year. And so the only ones that ultimately are Oscar Best Picture nominees that don't end up on the NBR Top 10 are Amour, which gets their Foreign Language Film Award. So like they mm-hmm. got something. And then Life of Pi, which doesn't show up anywhere. That's sort of the, the omission. Um, and then... NBR fills out their list with Promised Land, which is by far the, like, that's the bucket list of this year. That's the one where you look at it and you're just like, huh, Promised Land. (laughs) Um, And then its other two are, like, popular movies that were probably too niche in one way or another for Oscar, which is Ryan Johnson's Looper, uh, which is, like, a very important sort of connective tissue for, like, the old Ryan Johnson, who was sort of, like, very, like, cult fave, and now the new Ryan Johnson, who is sort of more broadly popular, and I think Looper is the, budget. Looper's the, the way station between them. And then the other one was The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is too teen for Oscar, and we get it, but, like, people really liked that movie. It was based on a popular book, yada yada. Um, so Promised Land showing up on this list was, like, that's the lifeline that it needed, and ultimately it didn't really get much more uh beyond that but 
It's an interesting National Board Review. It's one of the National Board Review always does the we're going to try and throw a bone to everything we can. Mm-hmm. And they really every re- studio uh, will buy a table at our event. Like Ben Affleck for Argo gets the special achievement in filmmaking, which like I don't know what that is, but like it's basically it's just like well we gave Catherine Bigelow best director for Zero Dark Thirty, but we don't want you to get nothing. So like we're just well, going to give you. I think you- it means like they they were basically saying, oh you did all of this. You directed the yes. movie. You starred in it. You produced it. You wrote it. You yes. this yeah. yeah. Which like that happens all the time. Yes. Um, they were pretty good with the, their breakthrough actor and actress. Well, Kavanjane Wallace for *Beasts of the Southern Wild*, which like how could you not that year uh, with that movie being what it was? But they gave Tom Holland the break breakthrough actor for *The Impossible*, which is pretty prescient. Like uh, you know that a few months ago well when them. like everybody was freaking out about *The Impossible* because it just showed up on Netflix, and it's like some of us were saying that this kid was great. Yeah, at the years time ago during this movie, and people were acting like this movie came out of nowhere, and it's an Oscar now. <laughs> yeah like know your history uh folks um just because it showed up on netflix bleak yeah. yes exactly so promised land the other award the promised land gets though is another one of those classic nbr bullshit bullshitty awards which is the nbr freedom of expression award which which was also won by a uh, previous episode conviction yes um and that is this it, it tied that year with uh, the documentary, the Central Park Five, and essentially this is National Board of Review's way to and like this is no slight against Central Park Five, which is a really good documentary, um, but it's again it's another sort of catch all thing. We're just like we want to find a way to give another award to another movie and this one the qualifications are are you about something that is uh newsy or uh you know if your subject matter sufficiently important like that kind of a thing so mm-hmm. um who got it this year i feel like there were I, this year's nbr i felt like had a few where it's just like um I think One Night in Miami got one of those sort of just like, yeah, they got the Freedom of Expression Award this year, which is essentially just like, well, we wanted to give you something and you're like about something. So we're going to, uh, you know, do that for you. And, mm-hmm. you know, good for them. Good for the national. This is why I never really get that worked up or mad at National Board of Review. Sometimes you see people being like, they're not real critics. Grumble, 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 like whatever. And it's just yeah, like... Yeah, they're this weird phantom assemblage of people. They say that there there's some academics in there, which... Okay. Um, there's film historians in there. Yeah. Like, nobody really knows who they are. They're just kind of hiding in plain sight, just yeah. like the Hollywood Foreign Press. There's a lot of sort of knee-jerk resentment because they always have to be the ones to get out first. Although that's been sort of, their grip on that has been waning. I feel like New York Film Critics Circle has been trying to take their lunch on that for a while mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, and then... Th- they're also sort of, again, slighted for the fact that they want to spread the wealth, give something to everybody. They're sort of seen as thirsty and, like, yes, but, like, for whatever reason, them being thirsty I find far more palatable than the Critics' Choice being thirsty because yes, the Critics' Choice try to be thirsty in ways that, like, we they want to – they, for so many years, touted – 
how many of their nominees would go on to be Oscar nominees. And it's just like, so you're predicting things? Like, that's what you, like, want to hang your hat on? Where, like, at least NBR, and this is why I like the Globes, too, they'll, like, they'll throw you something. The fact that NBR nominated the bucket list, a lot of people saw as a bug and I see as a feature, where it's just like, yeah, that's what (laughs) makes them fucking weird. Like, I like that. They always have one, at least one, that is absolutely absurd. This year, it was The Midnight Sky. Yes, and like, good, fine, good. I like that. It doesn't have to yeah, be. Yeah, have your the bad same taste sometimes. I have bad taste sometimes. Well, but no, you're right to compare them to Critics' Choice because Critics' Choice, a, I feel like is the only reason it is still a major precursor is because they are a large voting group similar to the way Oscars are. So consensus can build similarly when you have several thousand people voting for something but they're thirsty and uh, critics choice is thirsty in a way because like they decided uh, a few years ago probably about a decade ago that they were more importantly a television show yes than an actual award ceremony right yes and you know do your thing i guess but like yeah do your thing have your uh, superhero movie award so you can yeah, I don't know, have attention. But the fact that, like, you mentioned this year's uh, NBR top ten, and it's very like, yeah, they have uh, the Midnight Sky, which a movie that zero people I've ever heard of liking. Um, but okay, know, apparently everyone watched it. But also, they have the Midnight Sky, but they also have the forty-year-old version, and it's just like, oh right, mm-hmm. they'll go off script for like kind of like weird, cool things anyway. If you go back to bringing it back to the 2012 National Board of Review, their supporting actress is Anne Dowd for Compliance. That, like, self-promoted, you know, self-financed award campaign for Anne Dowd and Compliance. That was back when, like, by the way, nobody knew Anne Dowd's name. Like, you may have recognized her face from other things, but, like, it's not not like now where, like, Anne Dowd is, like, everybody's favorite character actress or whatever. Like, nobody knew who she was she was a sundance uh that movie played sundance and people really liked it or like some people really liked it some people uh kind of hated it it was a little divisive right compliance yeah um but like she was universally loved for that movie people have apparently forgotten about this because and that she self-financed her campaign because we did this for like one of our like twitter polls or something and people were like that's not a thing she didn't blah 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 blah. and it's like no she paid for her campaign i'm pretty sure she paid for the screeners for that movie yeah and she ended up with a National Board of Review Award, and, like, now she's, like, part of that year's, uh, you know, awards galaxy forever and ever and ever. And, like, and it mm-hmm. made more people watch that movie, and good for that. And good for the National Board of Review for, you know, and again, was it because they were campaigned to so directly? Probably, but, like, who fucking cares? It Like, it's a cool nomination. We now have National Institution and Dowd. Exactly. They got in on the ground floor with Anne Dowd, and they look better for it. Um, between that and Tom Holland, like this is actually a really good year for National Board Review looking uh, forward thinking, which is good. Um, their other acting awards that year were Bradley Cooper in Best Actor for Silver Linings Playbook, um, Jessica Chastain for Zero Dark Thirty for Best Actress, Leonardo DiCaprio for Django Unchained Supporting Actor. This, I think for all three of them, that like really helped set the table for all... You know, all three of them. I know DiCaprio doesn't end up getting nominated for Django Unchained, but like he was in that race pretty much the whole way up until, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Oscar nomination morning. He was the one when Seth MacFarlane and Emma Stone decided to get cute with, you know, 
uh oh uh, supporting actor nominees he's been nom- he's won before they all had won before and like dicaprio was the spoiler of that once they started doing that bit i'm like well i guess leonardo dicaprio didn't get nominated you fucking idiots <laughs> um i'll never let that go that aggravating that was the beginning of oscar nomination morning being like futzed with yeah like that was it, right? Like it hadn't really happened before that. Before that, it was still the year tried and true early morning press conference with Seth MacFarlane was truly the uh, a trendsetter for the worst in terms of Oscar. He kicked it all off. It's his fault. You let never let them tell you that picking a bad Oscar host can't have longstanding uh, negative reverberations because it can. Uh, he really uh, poisoned that well. It did give us, I will say, well, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let Seth MacFarlane off the hook. The fact that we got Dick Poop after this was because they went back to a little bit of the basics where Cheryl, Cheryl Boone Isaacs and Chris Pine, Chris Pine. Right? He was the one standing next to her. He was the Chris next to her when she said Dick Poop, right? <laughs> I think. Uh, who knows? Like, a Dick Poop uh, probably overshadowed all nominees. But, like, the fact that we got Dick Poop after uh, the Seth MacFarlane debacle is, like, a-, a miracle. Because, like, they did really kind of, like, go back to basics for that. But, like, that's the kind of moment you get when you get a president of the Academy who is not an actor and who, like, it's funnier that it came from... Cheryl Boone Isaacs, and it didn't come from uh, uh, Kumail Nanjiani. Not, not nothing against Kumail, but like the fact that like it wasn't an actor who made that mistake made that funnier. Yes, I will stand by that. Anyway, for achievement in cinematography, the nominees are Emmanuel Lubezki for Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, Robert Yeoman for The Grand Budapest Hotel. Lukash Yal and Richard Lenshowski for Ida. Dick Poop, Dick Pope for Mr. Turner. And Roger Deakins for Unbroken. You knew going into this Promised Land episode that we were going to talk about Dick Poop, you guys. I don't know why you're surprised. I don't know why and, this is a uh, surprise. The real surprise is we don't talk about Dick Poop every episode. <laughs> it's the best thing. When people talk about, like... Why do people pay attention to award season? It's so stupid and whatever. And it's just like, yeah, but it gives us moments like that. Like, I will never, I will never apologize for. Uh, that was a great moment on the timeline where it's just like, you know, <laughs> when it's nomination morning, where you just see like tweets that are just actress name, four exclamation points, or like, WTF, where is actor name, four exclamation points. And then you were just like, Scrolling and listening, scrolling and listening, and then it was just a sea of people (laughs) tweeting dick poop. So my experience on Oscar mornings have had become very uh, regimented, especially when I was working for Decider and I was like, I had to get like the nomination article up like first thing in the morning, right? But so if you follow me at all on social media, you know that like I have a process for Oscar nomination morning. And like this is a thing that goes back to like my college years or like not too long after my college years, where I would get so psyched for Oscar nomination morning. And I would, uh, for ease of, because, you know, initially I would watch like the nominations on E. And they would be reading about, and I would just scribble the names as fast as I could, and 
sometimes I wouldn't be able to keep up with it and like whatever. And like, I would drive myself crazy. So what I started to do was I would pre-write a list of like every possible conceivable uh, acting, directing, picture nominees. And so as they would read off the nominations, I would just check and just be like, got it. And I would put them all in alphabetical order because I knew they read the names in alphabetical order. So I would check as I went along. And the fringe benefit of that was when somebody got passed over in the alphabetical list, I knew it right away. And so my brain would have that half second of like serotonin jump of just like, oh. <gasps> Like, this Haven't happened. they screwed with that recently, though, that it's not always alphabetical? They'll go alphabetical by the movie? They've screwed with it a little bit. One of the it's times upsetting. was the Seth MacFarlane Emma Stone year. Um, and it has upset me, but, like, they've gone back to it. So, like, it's not like they've abandoned it forever. I always feel like it's precarious and we could lose it at any time, their dedication to the alphabet. But, like, we haven't lost it for good yet. But so that process of making those lists then has like blossomed into what i call the nerd list which is uh (laughs) i will do this for every category and and pre-make a list of contenders in every category a lot of these smaller categories do bake-offs now so like that helps where i'm not like listing a hundred things for uh, international feature right makeup. right exactly um but with like the acting categories i'm still basically like going by my best judgment trying to you know decide what 20 actors are still in contention or whatever usually it's not that many uh every once in a while i'll know that something is a real surprise when i have to like write it in you know myself this was going to be my question from like acting nominees or directing nominees when have you had to handwrite it I'm trying to think of what the like how how surprised that is very telling of like how much of a surprise one of these things were yeah because I know I, I've seen your nerd lists before didn't I make you the nerd list last year you might have this year I've got to figure out how I'm gonna do it because um I don't have access to a printer and um yeah and other people now have come to like depend on the nerd list like (laughs) that i sent it to them so i now feel sort of like a uh responsibility but so how did i even get on this oh right so like so dick poop happens so like my process on oscar nomination morning is i've got all these like pieces of paper out in front of me i'm ready to check my boxes i'm like i'm like an accountant on april 15th i'm just like i've got like paperwork and paperwork everywhere has i that's what i imagine accountants do on tax day um and also, while this is all happening, I'm, like, I've got my, like, article sort of, like, halfway written that I've got to, like, get up right away. So I can't really check Twitter or get immersed in the Twitter stuff, which is too bad because I want to have those reactions, too, of just, like, actress name, exclamation point. Um, somebody got nominated, and I'm super excited about it. But so dick poop happens, and I'm just, like my brain is screaming because my like my fingers have to have work to do right i've got boxes to check i've got lists to make sure are correct i've got an article to populate in my uh in the back end of my website and all my brain is doing is like dick poop she said dick poop and just like just going crazy and i know like i don't even think i actually did check the twitter timeline but i knew my brain is sending me these images of just like 
a rapidly scrolling Twitter timeline that is just like dick poop, dick poop, dick poop. And I'm just like, I'm missing out on this most joyous of occasion. But like, it's the, it was the wildest fucking shit. It will never not be funny. Cheryl Boone Isaacs has given us a gift. She should get an honorary Oscar in about 20 years just for that moment. Just Just for for dick poop. God. God, I like sorry, I sorry to know. Dick Pope that like he will never be known as Dick Pope anymore. Like, ugh. yeah, sorry to that uh, cinematographer. Sorry to cinematographer. that cinematographer. Yeah. I want to know who was responsible for telling noted curmudgeon Mike Lee that his cinematographer was mispronounced as Dick Poop. <laughs> I want yeah. I want I want footage of that happening. Yeah. It's a good point. What's his reaction to that? What is is it like yeah. is it like delight? Like impish delight? Is it like utter confusion? Is it just like get off of my porch? <laughs> like what is it? <laughs> like go away from me. I'm like in the middle of my 4 week rehearsal for my next movie I love and um yeah. Yeah, but like I or maybe he, I doubt that he was watching the nomination announcement. Oh, I doubt but it. Yeah. What is the look on his face? What is the birth opera scene facial <laughs> um, <laughs> transformation he goes through on hearing Dick Poop? Uh, honestly, it kind of fits with like the Mr. Turner vibe, right? Like a little bit. Of all the Mike sure. Lee movies, that like Mr. Turner is the one that best accommodates a, uh, a a flub where the president of the Academy accidentally says your cinematographer's name is Dick Poop. Like that, you know. There's a little bit of that, like mirthful, um, uh, not bodiness, but uh, you know, a little a little scatological uh, humor probably would have uh, amused Mr. Turner. We really went far afield with this. I'm happy with it, though. I'm happy that we had our dick poop conversation at long last. Um, So, NBR. Oh, the uh, AARP Movie for Grown Ups Award. I was just about to do that. We're so in sync. Yeah, so the only other. So, go for it. I want to know how these nom- the nominations that it got, how it got them and didn't get other ones. Because yes. they nominated Frances McDormand in Supporting Actress and Gus Van Sant for Best Director. But how are they not going to nominate Hal Holbrook for Supporting Actor? It's true. Um, so Frances gets the Supporting Actress nomination. That, like, she's not bad in this movie, but she's not really in this movie much, and she doesn't get very much of an emotional through line at all. Like we get a couple moments where she's on the phone with her kid and like, she's missing her kid, but like there's really not much to that character. It's an odd nomination, even among like the M for G's, right? Uh huh. I don't know. It's weird. Other nominees she's make also... more sense in this. Sally Field for Lincoln, obviously. Shirley McLean for Bernie is a rad nomination. I think that's a really good one. Was she Globe nominated? I don't think so. I think this is the only really like big thing she got for that. I could Maybe. be mistaken. Jackie Weaver wins it for Silver Linings Playbook, which is one of the weirder Oscar nominations. Like she's another one. It's just like, what does she do with Silver Linings Playbook? Like the joke became that she, she makes just the like Krabby Patties. I was gonna say she shows up with the Krabby Patties and the homemades, and it's just like, yeah, but like 
I guess I'm sure she has one like little like tearful scene with Bradley Cooper or whatever about like she has this teen the her Oscar clip is the scene at the like very beginning of the movie where she's driving him home yeah from his care facility and then it's also just like the shot of her watching Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper dancing yeah I remember when she got that nomination. I, like, momentarily was just like, oh, Silver Linings Playbook could win Best Picture if they like it this much. Mm-hmm. Um, to give it, you know, acting nominations in all four categories, I'm just like, oh, wow, like, sure. Um, so she wins Supporting Actress. The Weirdo nomination, weirdly, isn't even Frances McDormand. It's Catherine Keener for A Late Quartet, which is not uh, Quartet the Cordit from the uh, from the Golden Globes that year. We've talked about uh, Kristen Wiig and Will Ferrell. A late quartet is her and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Christopher Walken. And uh, it's about a quartet who are late. Like, now I'm becoming Kristen yeah. Wiig. <laughs> they're, they're a string quartet, I believe. I've seen this movie. Um, yes, they're a string quartet. Fine. Wait, so the, like, quartet is not about a string quartet? No, that's about well. I've never seen the quartet. The quartet. I know one of them is a singer. <laughs> okay, all right. I sh- I've seen neither one of these movies, so I am completely in the weeds. But uh, but the fact that they both happened in the same year is truly wild. Like right. like an act of you know the world sort of like folding in upon itself is very very. Why weird. would you simply call it quartet when you can call it arriving on time quartet? <laughs> Right, a late quartet and a punctual quartet. Like, that would have been the true rivalry of our time. Yeah. Um, Also wild that Jackie Weaver won any award for Silver Linings Playbook over Sally Field in Lincoln. I know, Sally Field's so good in Lincoln. It's true. No offense to Jackie. We love Jackie. Yeah. We've talked some shit about Jackie on mic before, but uh, I love Jackie. Meanwhile, Gus Van Sant's in Best Director against, like, four fucking heavyweights that year, where it's, like, Spielberg for Lincoln, Ang Lee for Life of Pi, David O. Russell, Silver Linings Playbook, Catherine Bigelow for Zero Dark Thirty, and it's, like, contender, 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 and then it's, like, Gus Van Sant for Promised Land. Okay. like I'm gonna pull this work. up. Like, is he a, an Emperor darling of some kind? Oh, check Has that out. Has he been nominated out. other times? Uh, well, he won for Milk, but that's it. So it's not like they're nominating him for, um, well, they wouldn't nominate him for something like Paranoid Park. Never mind. <laughs> that would be the wildest M4G's wow. nominee. Okay, can I also, as I'm, like, scrolling on IMDb, and this is the next adjacent award or whatever, Best Grown-Up Love Story in 2012. Not, uh, Lincoln for Sally Field and Daniel Day-Lewis, which, fine, I get which it. Is that's nominated. not like. Which, no, that's what I mean. It's, that's nominated. Hope Springs is nominated, which I think is a wonderful, like, the definition of a grown-up love story, right? That's the whole point of that movie, is let's tell a grown-up love story, Hope Springs. Um, the Cordit, the aforementioned The Cordit, with uh, Maggie Smith and Tom Courtenay. Um, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which is also a lovely late-in-life love story with Judy Dench and Bill Nye's characters. Those all get beat out by Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren in Hitchcock, which, like, the actual fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> what in the world? 
they All were I have to on say one. Is, thank God they didn't nominate Hyde Park on Hudson for the cousin hand job. It's true, which they could have. That was a very hand job a year because that was also the sessions. So yeah, God, good for you, twenty twelve. A salute to you. Um, the year in hand. <laughs> the best exotic marigold hotel does win best movie for grownups, which like that was that movie's destiny, and and good for that. We got to do that movie at some point soon. Maybe you need to chill on the dames for a while, though. No, that's fine. We'll let the dames sort of uh, lie fallow for a bit. Yeah, we've been we've been uh, rocking with Judy pretty hard for a while. So yeah, we'll do that in a bit. Good for M4Gs. This is a good year for M4Gs. They all are, really. But at least somebody acknowledged the sessions beyond uh, Helen Hunt's very good performance. It's a good point. I like that movie. That movie's nice. Um. Yeah. Wild. So and and okay, so just because I've scrolled through for the rest of these M for G's, they also nominated John Louis Trentignon for a more, which like was wild to me. wasn't happening that season. That was the the twenty first century era of uh, older actresses getting nominated for two hander movies, where the award season just fully forgets about their male co stars is like a whole thing where it's like it's away from her um where julie christie gets like oscar nomination all of this stuff for well, like well deserved um but poor gordon pinsent is just like right there with her and is doing phenomenal work and like jack squat from award season uh same with john louis trintignant for uh amour and uh opposite uh emmanuel riva same thing for tom courtney opposite uh charlotte rampling in 45 years just like not to be all, like, justice for old white men, but, like, justice for those old white men. They were doing such good jobs. <laughs> Are you saying that this at Oscar Buzz is now a justice for these old white men? Yes, you can okay. now pull quote me on that and, and fully uh, ride me out of town on a rail. But you know what I mean. No, I agree I'm, with I'm you on wrong. all of those performances, yeah. jokes aside. Yeah. But an odd, an odd little trend. And, like, again, it, like... It plays into the fact that, like, there aren't as many leading roles for women in big, you know, uh, buzzy movies. And that's why those performances, you know, there's less, maybe less competition. I always feel dicey when I say that there's less competition for Best Actress because in a perfect world, there wouldn't be. There are plenty of wonderful performances. But, like, Oscar voters narrow their perceptions and just of those narrowed perceptions, there's fewer lead performances by women. Anyway. Anyway, M for G's. Um, what else about Promised Land did we want to We could mention? talk a little bit about Gus Van Sant. It's our second Gus Van Sant movie yes. we've ever done. Yes, we should. Um, and we talked about Finding Forrester, and I like it makes sense that with Finding Forrester, the conversation went to, uh, you know, who is the man now, dog, and, you know, deep discussions of that. Gus Van Sant's directing career is absolutely fascinating to me and like i always want to just sort of like linger on it for a while because he is capable of the most like really esoteric um challenging small sort of like uh you know my own private idaho which like became popular but like did so really sort of organically um mm-hmm. elephant jerry uh the last days that sort of like trilogy of like very kind of quiet uh small movies about death yeah movies about death in the in the uh mid paranoid arc right 
And then, like, his other stuff, and, like, sometimes he'll try something experimental, like remaking Psycho Shot for Shot, which, like, should be talked about probably more. But then it's, like, Goodwill Hunting, Finding Forrester, um... What, to Die For. Like, well, To Die For is, like, there's an edge to To Die For, even, right? Like, To Die For mm-hmm. is, you know, it's not, it's pricklier than maybe you expect it to be. But, like, something like Restless, or something like, um... I mean, nobody saw Sea of Trees, so who knows? But like something like "Don't worry, he won't get far on foot." The uh, the Joaquin this Phoenix like movie. emotionalism and just like and just kind of an absence of whatever directorial stamp that he puts so significantly on his other movies. It's like the gulf between those two like Gus Van Sant genres are is really wide to me. I thought about Finding Forrester a lot while watching this movie because I remember watching that for this podcast and being like, this doesn't feel, unless maybe I'm misremembering, it didn't feel like watching a Gus Van Sant movie. Not or at it all. made me really question what makes a Gus Van Sant movie. I agree. And like watching this, I certainly didn't feel like it. I was watching a Gus Van Sant movie, but I definitely felt like I was watching a movie from the director of Finding Forrester, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense because I thought the exact same thing. And like, he's got a lot of interesting shades to his, like, I guess I as a director that don't always overlap. Yeah. But he's an. He's so hard to place sometimes that it just makes him an interesting director to talk about, even when it's not successful. It's interesting that both of his collaborations with Matt Damon just fully hand the movie over to Matt Damon. And, like, he's just, like, it's not like, I don't want to, like, again, I wasn't on set. I don't know. He, you know, he's a very hardworking director. But he, with both of those movies, was really content to just sort of not go to like Gus Van Sant at a 10 at that movie. It was just like, I'm just going to let Matt Damon's character and story and whatever sort of, you know, come through in this. And it works in Goodwill Hunting because that is a really interesting script with a really, really good to great central performance in it. And Promised Land doesn't have either of those things. So Well, and Goodwill Hunting, I'm not sure. I agree that he fully hands that movie over to Matt Damon, but Goodwill Hunting has this really rich emotional core to it, right? Yes. The way that like a lot of Gus Van Sant's best movies, um or like some of his most successful movies do, like I'm thinking of Milk as well. Yeah. Uh, you there's other things going on about my own private Idaho, but like, I do think of that as an emotional movie as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I guess it's like, it's, he's harder to pin down than I initially sort of thought he would be because you're right. It's not like my own private Idaho or to die for are in of the same type as I think the fact that he did Jerry and elephant and last days back to back to back, that it really was this trilogy of movies with, similar vibes and aesthetics to each other. Like they were all small in ways that kind of conversed with each other, even if they weren't like about like same subject matter. Um, But like that felt like the most, that was the period of his career where it felt like the Gus Van Sant thing is like a tangible thing, which in a way that it, it hadn't been even since like drugstore cowboy my own private idaho even cowgirls get the blues which is like i think the last time that his career felt that cohesive and Mm -hmm. but like to die for and the psycho remake are not like 
conventional safe movies, but they're not weird in the same way that like Elephant and Last Days are weird. If that yeah. makes sense. So it's like, it's not like it's just you get one Gus Van Sant or the other. There's like a lot of different flavors of Gus Van Sant, but one of them is this kind of Finding Forrester, Promised Land, um, real soft pedal. Like just a real, real soft pedal. And it's, it, it doesn't work as well. But I think that's, those are the ones that like unsurprisingly come under our umbrella of what we talk about, where it's like, Eventually, Gus Van Sant became had the kind of a reputation where, like, his kind of movies are going to get a little bit of Oscar buzz, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so, what, I mean, even Sea of Trees before yep. you know it was seen at Cannes, right? Like, was uh, yeah, the fact that it was at Cannes at all was is you know is Gus Van Sant and his reputation sort of. That's so weird because I don't think he has had. Well, I mean, Elephant obviously that's his biggest can success, mm-hmm. but like that they took that movie at can. I never know. Ceases to amaze. He well, like you can say that Gus Van Sant is also on this like downshift in quality. Um, that didn't necessarily start with Promised Land, but like is prominent for that because it really yeah. kind of started with Restless, that movie nobody saw with. Uh, Mia Wasikowska yeah because there's that Sea of Trees and Don't Worry He'll Get He Won't Get Far on Foot which also isn't very good right that we hope Gus Van Sant can bounce back from he had this Will Ferrell movie that he was going to shoot at Paris Fashion Week right but obviously the pandemic derailed that right um, it was written by Michael Chabon etc like that sounded incredibly promising yeah because yeah that's the sort of the big bummer of the sort of post-milk downturn for uh, Gus Van Sant in the last decade is it's not just like they were misses, but they were real quiet misses. Like, Restless was a failure that nobody saw. Promised Land was largely a failure that mostly nobody saw. Sea of Trees was a disaster, but it was a disaster that happened outside of the vision of anybody who wasn't at the Cannes Film Festival. Like, you know it was bad because you heard it was bad from, like, across the ocean. But, like, nobody you know has seen The Sea of Trees. I'm saying... I've seen Sea of Trees. No, I know. I'm not saying you specifically. (laughs) But I think. But, like, the average person doesn't know anybody who's seen The Sea of Trees. I know you've seen The Sea of Trees. Um, I'm like, don't worry, he, he won't get far on foot, which was a Netflix movie, right? Amazon. Amazon. I knew it was a streaming thing. So, like, it was certainly widely available to people, but still nobody saw it. So, he just, he's, like, disappeared in a way that, like, bums me out. Because I think he could be a really interesting director, and I think we're sort of better for the moments when he is being a really interesting director. Mm-hmm. So, there's that. Let's talk about Gasland for a second. I sort of glossed over it when we talked about the origin of this movie. But Mm -hmm. Gasland was a documentary that was nominated for uh, Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars in 2010. And it's about fracking and the environmental aspects of fracking. It's the one that was mostly well known for the scenes where they were lighting people's tap water on fire to show how much natural gas was in the uh the water supply and how much contamination was uh was in the water supply and my remembrance of gasland that's because you know 
I am a dum-dum who learns about the world through mostly movies and TV, is I remember being like, oh, that's the first time I ever really heard about fracking. Aren't I, like, you know, the simple person who needed, like, you know, a Hollywood movie to tell me that this thing exists? I was not alone in that. Like, looking back, like, all of these reviews of Promised Land are just like, this sort of continues the path set by uh, Gasland. And that, like, Gasland really, like, made a lot of people aware of fracking who were not aware of fracking. Mm-hmm. It really, like, brought that issue uh, well, to prominence. Well, it kind of was fam- – like, Promised Land had a little bit of this, but I think because this was a movie that went away quickly, whereas Gasland was an Oscar nominee, it was on HBO, yeah. et cetera. Got a sequel like, – it got a lot of heat and attention from the fracking companies, like trying to say that it was uh, like misinformation or this type of thing. And like, you're talking about billions of dollars of an apparatus working against a movie too. And like that certainly puts the movie in a certain position. So that's like one of the good things where it can, we learn about the evils of fracking. However, it is that we yeah. learn about it for the first time. They motiv- they mobilized against promised land too. There was a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, protest and sort of, uh, an informational campaign. Interesting. It's so funny to feel like, Oh, Hey, this movie shows that like how big energy companies will really like put their whole apparatus into mobile mobilization, uh, about disinformation about fracking and it's just like well to counter that we are going to mobilize our organization to sending out disinformation about fracking and it's just like cool idea guys like uh your sense of irony is sharp um so i guess in that way at least like promised land can sort of hang its hat and just like well we you know we ruffled some feathers on some level so Cool. I mean, I think that you can say promised land to somebody and maybe 10 times out of 10, they haven't seen it. Of course. But they know that it's the fracking movie says something. Yes. Yeah. When we put out our teaser for what movies are we going to do in February and you did the famous uh, peppermint crossing her fingers in front of her mouth. Not the fracking. Not the fracking. As soon as people recognized that image, they were like, oh, you're doing Promised Land, the movie about the fracking. So, yeah, you're not wrong there at all. Um, the fracking movie about the fracking. Uh, I want to go through my notes and see if there was anything that I missed. Um, oh, the thing at the beginning where uh, Matt Damon and Rosemary DeWitt are at the bar and they're flirting or whatever, and they do the thing where he does eight shots in eight minutes to get everybody at the bar free drinks or whatever. Eight shots in eight minutes is a lot. Like, they up it from six shots that's in six minutes to, to eight. Wow. And I'm just like, that's gonna... F-. Like, he wakes up with, like, a hangover, but I'm just like, I'm surprised he woke up. Like, It's one of that the good beats up. of the movie that it immediately cuts to him waking up on her sofa yeah. with a hangover from hell. Though, yeah, you're right. I, you, even if he woke up, he would be waking up uh, uh, very slowly. Um, I'm surprised he could move. Like, away. yeah, it was. That's a lot of shots. Um, I liked that little moment. There are a couple little moments in this movie that I think are really well deserved, well observed. The uh, the moment where the basketball team comes out and they need the gym when they're in the middle of the uh, the meeting, the Hal Holbrook meeting at the gym i was just like oh okay like the you know the apparatus of this town kind of moves on i liked that um i liked francis mcdormand flirting with titus welliver yeah likely couple alert like 
she's too she's too big to get cast on Bosch, but like kind of cast her on Bosch. Like I want I want my Francis McDormand Titus Welliver uh, romance to uh, to happen on, in some medium or another. Uh, she's Titus Welliver, the most unlikely small town <laughs> citizen you've ever seen. Titus Welliver, like. I don't know how the age spaces out, but I'm pretty sure you could cast him as Sam Elliott's son in something, right? Sure. They're probably about they a good 20. They're like 20 years apart. Like Titus Welliver has such a Sam Elliott vibe to me. Like, especially when uh, they put any kind of facial hair on him whatsoever. Like, it's. I mean, but Sam Elliott's so cuddly. Titus Welliver, like, plays characters who kill people but like sam elliott's cuddly when he wants to like play against type like sam elliott's vibe is like there's that's a gruff man no, sam elliott's vibe in the past decade sure. has been high would you like to have sex with a septuagenarian right because every movie that casts him decides they're going to cast him as like uh like against type essentially like he's like that voice is meant like that, he's handsome he is but he's also just like you know he's a grumble face um i can't get over i wrote down like multiple notes about john krasinski's henley like lord knows i'm attracted to a man in a henley but like it would not endear him to the people in this town i'm telling you um uh yes okay um the part where hal holbrook has to tell matt damon's character he's a good man by saying you're a good man i'm just like that's when you know that like a script really is needs to like the the problem this movie has with who am I supposed to root for in this movie is such a huge one where it's just like, oh, is it the corporate stooge or the like wildly insincere bro environmentalist? And it's just like, you know, ultimately, like, where am I supposed to go with this? Like, what do you want me to do with this? Because it's I have no even if I'm going to go in one direction or another, it's not going to be enthusiastically or like with my heart. So. Ugh, I don't know. Yeah. Am I wrong? It's been a while since we've watched kind of one of these, uh, not to put too fine a word on it, but like nothing movies. Yeah. And then my last note, because I watched the trailer before we started recording, um, there's enough Monsters and Men song in the trailer because this was the era of everybody puts enough Monsters and Men song in their trailer and the law demanded it. So there we were. Fantastic. What do you got? Anything else before we hop on into uh, IMDb land? I don't think I have anything. Let's do the IMDb game. All right. Uh, why don't you tell our fair listeners what the IMDb game is? So, townsfolk, <laughs> um, uh, if we do have any fracking uh, uh, representative salespeople, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, the rules of the IMDb game for everyone of the village and not uh we we end our episodes with the imdb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that imdb says they are most known for if any of those titles are television or voiceover work we'll mention that up front after two wrong guesses we get the remaining titles release years as a clue and if that's not enough it just becomes a free for all of hints free for all Free for IMDb. All right. That doesn't work. Uh, Chris, do you want to give or guess first? I think I want to give to you first. All right. You've been on a streak of doing very well. I know. This can't last. 
Uh, it can't last because I would like to challenge you today with a performer we mentioned in this episode as a National Board of Review winner. She was also nominated at the AARP Movies for Grownups, so don't <laughs> give all the credit to the National Board of Review for going there first. Also Critics' Choice nominee, Anne Dowd. Anne Dowd. I knew you were going to do this to me. Okay. No television. No television. No time. Wild! Utterly wild. Despite her uh, Emmy Award-winning performance on Hulu's um, The Handmaid's Tale. Emmy Award-winning performance on Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and also uh, rad-ass performance on The Leftovers. Like, oh, God. Oh, yeah, because she. I've never watched The Leftovers, but uh, I do love the gif of her saying, let's go fucking die. You would really like The Leftovers. I know there's probably some resistance to, like, it's the show that everybody's talking about, so I, I get no, it. But no, it's not that. It's just that it's a, it's it's a, a lot of seasons of TV. It's a commitment, but it's, uh, oh, it's quite good. Or as Anne might pronounce it, TV. <laughs> TV, the great people working in TV. Okay. <laughs> Anne Dowd, Annie Dowd. Well, like, if it's not any of the TV shows... National Institution, one of our finest, Anne Dowd. Compliance has got to be one of them. Compliance is. All right. So now we get into... What are the other movies? Okay. This is probably more heart than head of a guess, but I'm going to say Hereditary. Hereditary is on there. Yes, good for you. Good for you, IMTB. God, she's so terrifying in that movie. But in a weirdly, like, uh, She's so terrifying way. because she doesn't play it like she is in a horror movie or she's nefarious. Which, if you look at that character and, like, her point of view in this, like, uh, coven or whatever, like, they think they're doing the good work. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, all right, now I've got to think of, like, there's probably something that's, like, big budget... But she's got a small role in that, like, I'm forgetting. The thing, the good thing about Anne Dowd is that I'm only really working with, like, the last decade. Like, I can't imagine anything from before 2010 is going to show up on her IMDb. Oh, no. It's not Collateral Beauty, is it? Is that a guess? Yes. No, it is not Fuck. Collateral okay. Beauty. <laughs> I've never gotten a gif of Anne Dowd, like, tiptoeing to a mailbox, but it's one of the funniest acting beats I've ever seen in something that wasn't trying to She's be She's so entertaining in that movie for, like, beauty. hardly being in that movie, but, like, oh, my God. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, God, what other movies has she been in? I'm so attuned to her on television. Um... Like, she's in, like, Garden State and, like, Bachelorette, but, like, those roles are so small. I am going to guess Garden State, though. Garden State is one of That's them. That's truly wild and insane. Okay, so you have one more movie she's to Natalie guess. She's Natalie Portman's mom in Garden State, and, like, she's she good, is. but, like, wow. Okay, one more to guess. One more to guess, you have one wrong answer. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right. It's funny that I said that there wouldn't be anything before 2010, and then my next correct guess was something before 2010. Um, exactly. I might just need to throw something away 
to like get a year and at least help me out in that way. Um, but what to even throw out? Um, like she's in. Uh, I, I'm just gonna guess Bachelorette, even though I don't think it's Bachelorette. It is not Bachelorette. Okay. The uh, year of your film is 2004, which <laughs> is the same, same year as Garden State. As Garden State. God damn it! All right, go back, go back, go back in time. Um, 2004. See, it's going to be something that she was like in, like such a super like character actor role that like I'm not going to remember. Is it a movie I've seen, or is it like something that's like totally absolutely off- you've seen this movie? Okay, is it a movie I like? Uh, I forget, but I think so. Okay, it's a movie we've talked about doing passively, not actively. So it had Oscar buzz. Yes. Did it have precursors? Um, I do believe so. Let me look. I wouldn't be surprised if specifically one performance did have precursors. I'm pretty sure it did. Yes. That performance was a Globe and BAFTA nominee. And also an AARP Movies for Grown Ups nominee. Oh, God. 2004. <laughs> We've talked about that actor doing another movie with this movie's director. We've had an episode on this Globe and BAFTA-nominated star for this movie doing another movie with the same director. Oh, God. Okay. Globe and... Did you say BAFTA nominee or Globe and Critics' Choice nominee? Globe and BAFTA. And AARP. And AARP. Oh! It's uh, Meryl Streep and the Manchurian Candidate. It's the Manchurian Candidate. Yes. And Dowd's in that movie. It is the Huh. She plays a congresswoman. Sure. I should go back and watch that again and enjoy uh, Anne Dowd. That's awesome. That's a weird IMDb game for Aunt Dowd. Jesus. No television. Yeah, not The Leftovers, not The Handmaid's Tale, but The Manchurian Candidate and Garden State. Sure thing. Okay. Weird. Well, my streak of, uh, of perfect games had to end sometime. Okay. I'm so sorry. All right. For you, my friend. Actually, I'm going to give you this person's name before I tell you why, and then I'll tell you why later. Oh. Uh, but I'm going to have you do John Goodman. John Goodman. John Goodman, who won the, like, whatever legacy prize they want to call it at um, a National Board of Review, the year of Promised Land. Yes. Uh, is that the why? I'm just going to have you guess. <laughs> okay, so uh, you didn't say television, so I'm going to guess no television. No television, no Roseanne, no The Connors, no uh, Righteous Gemstones. Uh-huh, so Argo. Argo, yes. Cool. Um, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yes! You motherfucker. I thought that would be hard um, for you. He's so good in that movie. He is. Um, People don't talk about that movie Bowsk. anymore, though. It's too bad. It's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, Lebowski. Nope. Strike one. No Lebowski. Uh, Barton Fink. Yes, Barton Fink. You son of a bee. <laughs> I knew a Coens would be in there. 
Um, now my curiosity is, is it just one Coen's or is it another Coen's? I mean, if it's another Coen's, it's not going to be inside Lewin Davis, I don't think, because he just has the, like, one or two scenes. I don't think it'll be Coyote Ugly. Should be, though. <laughs> I mean, that sure, man dances sure, on a sure. bar. He he earned it. Uh, you know what, John Goodwin. John Goodman always earns it. He's great. He is great. Uh, it, screw it. I'm just gonna try to get the year, though. I think this could be right, and I'm gonna say Raising Arizona. It's not Raising Arizona. That's a very good guess. Your missing year is 2012. Oh, okay. So also the Argo year is it? Flight. Flight. Yes. I didn't want to tell you before that the connective tissue was that he won that NBR prize for four different movies in 2012, uh, two of them being Argo and Flight. Yes. What was the other one? Uh, Hold on a second. What are his other 2012 movies as I'm looking uh, at his? I think one of them's like Trouble with the Curve. It is. It was Argo, Trouble with the Curve, Flight, and uh, he was a voice in Paranorman. (laughs) Gotcha. So that's what they gave him to him. So sure. Um, he's in a short film at, called KFC Loves Gays, where he plays Colonel Sanders that I'm going to maybe need to like track down at some point. <laughs> sure. Sure. Go for it. Work. Oh, I love John Goodman. He's great. It's insane that he's never been nominated for an Oscar. Uh, I don't know how that's going to you know, rectify itself, but hopefully soon. <sighs> All right. Yeah. Cool. Good episode. Anything else before we uh, go away about uh, Promised Land? Glad we did it. Twenty twelve is a really interesting year to talk about. More more interesting yeah. than to talk about Promised Land. But like, I love talking about twenty twelve at the Oscars. It's a really uh, strong, you know, rich kind of a year. It's a time. It's a time. It's a time. All right. That's our episode, though. If you want more of this at Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So make like it's open mic night at the local watering hole and try and win us over with your charm and compliments. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. And less fracking. Less fracking. Not the fracking. Everyone's a winner, baby, that's no lie, that's no lie. You never fail, to satisfy, satisfy. Oh, 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 o